Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Obviously, the big story this weekend right around the world uh, is the uh, sudden emergence of a new variant of concern. We've learned about this very quickly, which in a way is is a good thing. Obviously, though, it creates a lot of uncertainty. This Omicron uh, variant, which appears to have originated somewhere in southern Africa, we've learned a lot about it via officials in South Africa, which is a testament to their surveillance system. Their genome sequencing doesn't necessarily mean it originated there. Ultimately, maybe it becomes a moot point. number of other countries now reporting cases of this variant, none yet detected in Canada. That's probably only a matter of time. Now, today, the World Health Organization providing an update, which just illustrates how little we still know at this point with regard to transmissibility or severity of disease. Quote, it is not yet clear. There is that worry, though, that there could be an increased risk of reinfection, with this variant. This could punch some holes in our immune defenses, which is worrying. As mentioned, we're seeing a number of countries respond, taking steps to try to limit the spread of this variant. Joining us for some thoughts on where things stand, what we know, what we still need to learn about this new variant. Very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Dr. Isaac Bogosh, infectious disease physician and scientist based out of the Toronto General Hospital. Dr. Bogosh, thanks so much for making some time for us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on. Nice to chat. Well, and and again, I think that World Health Organization update today sort of underscores where we're at, that we've got a little bit of a head start on this variant, which is encouraging, but at the same time, it just illustrates how much we still need to understand, doesn't it? Yeah, great point. I mean, it's just we can't speak conclusively about this because there's so many unanswered questions, and I think you listed them off perfectly. To what extent, if any, does this cause uh, more severe illness to what extent if any is this more transmissible and to what extent if any does this evade any uh, immunity we have either from recovery from infection or from vaccination we just we just don't know you know the, the reason this was labeled the variant of concern was because it has mutations in it that may right. make this virus behave in a in a way that we don't want it to behave in but we actually don't know if it behaves in that manner well, and this is an important point because we 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 do know that certain mutations are are associated with certain behaviors, and we've witnessed those in in other variants. But when you get combinations of different mutations or the sheer number of mutations that we see in this variant, I mean, it can be very unpredictable, right? In terms of how that all interacts. Yeah, that's exactly it. It's not like adding different Lego blocks, and then all of a sudden your Lego looks exactly like the blocks you added. Every time there's a mutation, right. it changes the shape of the virus uh, itself. And the virus may or may not take on some of those characteristics. I think at the end of the day, though, and this is always have to preface this with this is total speculation on my part. But at the end of the day, I don't think anyone would be surprised, for example, if this virus had some uh, erosion of our immunity to to it, be it uh, recovery from infection or or vaccination, like no one would be surprised if that happens. But like it would be extremely unusual. It would be exceedingly unusual if, you know, there's, you know, all of a sudden all the immunity we have from vaccination or recovery from infection is just a race like that. Just that's just not how it works. So, uh, you know, we'll, we'll learn more like anything else. Let's keep an open mind when we're in an unknown environment like this. And there's tremendous uncertainty. I think it's obviously fair to be cautious and take a cautious approach. And let's keep an open mind and, and, and manage this in an empiric manner. 
Yeah, which is important. And I mean, I, I think as people try to follow all of this and understand what it is we're dealing with, I, I think it's important to convey that message to them. But, you know, we, we see governments respond. I mean, Israel basically closing its borders is an example of a country that's, I, I guess you could say, erring on the side of caution. But I think, you know, that that suggests or maybe it creates an impression that this is really bad, that countries are taking kind of unprecedented steps in dealing with this. So in terms of communicating all of this to the public, the need to over-prepare and maybe hope for the best, it, it can send some confusing messages. I totally agree. And I think, well, I mean, look at look at the response. I mean, there's no blanket statements here. You've seen some cautious response. You've seen some rather inflammatory responses. You've seen this from media, from scientists, from doctors. Like there's been a, it's, it's been a bit of a zoo. Uh, and it's unfortunate yeah. because at the end of the day, the general public is confused. Some people are anxious. Some people are scared. Uh, and, you know, we have to find ways to communicate uncertainty better because we just don't know. But, uh, you know, to your point about policy, right, here you have a virus. We don't know if it's more transmissible. We don't know what these properties are. But it's there's evidence now that it's well beyond southern Africa. And there's mm -hmm. evidence that people have acquired this infection without any contact to southern Africa at all. I mean, we can debate what the appropriate measures are to from a country level, from a global level, but like focused travel measures don't help. It makes us feel good. We feel it looks like we're doing something, but they, they're, they're largely performative, right? I mean, that, that's just, that's what we, we saw. We've seen this a million times before COVID-19, for example, H1N1, but even in the COVID-19 era, look how well travel restrictions worked to Wuhan and then to China. Then we had the Alpha variant emerge from the UK. Look how well travel measures work from yeah. travel to the UK. Then we had the Delta variant that emerged or was originally discovered in, in India. Look how well travel measures worked from there. Like we know focused travel restrictions, just they just don't work. They just don't. Looks like we're doing something, makes us feel good about ourselves that we're taking action, but there's probably better better things we could be doing. Well, you're probably right. I mean, it does start from, you know, the notion, and I mean, it's true at some level. Obviously, the virus doesn't get around the world on its own, right? Uh, us as humans are the ones transporting around the world. So obviously, international travel plays a role in viruses circulating around the globe. But as you say, it doesn't necessarily follow then that those kinds of responses make much difference. Oh, that's exactly it. I mean, the virus is clearly, A, people circumvent the travel measures and take alternative routes to get to where they want to go. B, by the time, you know, by thinking that the virus is true or this particular variant is truly restricted to one particular area, you're wrong. I mean, the more you look, the more you find. And I think we're going to see this over the coming days. You're going to see different countries. We're already seeing it happen. Different countries are saying, oh, by the way, we've got a few cases here. We've got a few cases there. You know, there was, there, there's cases of, of people with this infection or with this particular variant, pardon me, that have no contact or no travel to southern yeah. Africa. So, I mean, by the time we start to see that, the cat's kind of out of the bag and you start to have to take take different approaches. By no means am I saying this is the right thing to do. So here, obviously, more speculation, but like if you want to keep a transmissible respiratory virus out of your country, or at least you want to delay a very transmissible respiratory virus from coming into your country. It's not necessarily the travel measures you should be looking at. It's your border measures you should be looking at. That's how you do it. I'm not saying we should do this. I'm just saying that's mm -hmm. how, how that's how it's done. It slows it down a lot more. Obviously, those are huge political decisions that people have to make. And those are I don't envy anyone in a senior political or public health role right now. These are very difficult decisions to make.
Well, there's also the decision with regard to booster shots. And Canada's at an interesting crossroads here in, in how widely we want to distribute booster doses. You know, we saw with Delta that the evidence was pretty clear. One dose really didn't cut it. It was important to have two. If we're into a situation here where two doses are good, but three are better, uh, does Canada need to double down on that? Should Canada wait for more tailored boosters? Should the emphasis be on getting vaccines to, to other countries so we prevent these situations? We, we get some tough decisions to make. I agree. I mean, listen, you can ask 100 people, you're probably going to get 100 different answers. Here's my approach, and I fully appreciate that there's lots of people with different opinions on the matter. Yeah. If we just want to look at, let's look at data, Okay. You can't ignore the international data that demonstrates that there, there is some waning of immunity. There absolutely is. Yes, it's overblown in some studies, but it's still there. It's still there. Then you have to look at the Canadian data. And the Canadian data demonstrates it's, we're, we did things slightly differently in Canada. Our doses were separated by further by beyond that three and four week margin. So, you know, there's some excellent Ontario data demonstrating, yeah, there, there is some waning immunity. It's probably not as significant compared to other places. Uh, if you'll I think if we learn from international data and look at the Canadian data, it's pretty clear to me that we should be giving third doses, or at least offering third doses to people who are 50 years and up. I don't think we all need a third dose now. Maybe more and more people will be eligible later on based on data as it evolves. But for now, I think 50-year-olds and up would be reasonable. One other point, I don't mean to blab on and on. You know, um, the WHO has called for widespread moratorium on on third dose strategy for entire populations until, you know, 2022, just to give other countries a better opportunity for vaccination. I think that's reasonable. And I think we can vaccinate 50 plus, not vac not with third doses and at least offer it, not have the widespread third dose strategy for every single person and respect the WHO request while also simultaneously looking after our, our community in a data driven manner. So another interesting question that's arisen, and, and it's very early, and this is speculation, maybe it's better to pose it as a hypothetical. When, when you have a variant with uh, a lot of mutations, that it can potentially destabilize the virus, that, that maybe it weakens it. There was some indication maybe from, from what they were seeing in South Africa that maybe there was some milder illness associated with this variant. Again, way too soon to say for sure. What would be the impact of uh, of a variant that is weaker or, or one that has a combination of being more transmissible but producing less severe disease? Would that weirdly be almost a, a good thing? Yeah, I mean, sure. I, I like how you framed it because this is purely a theoretical conversation and, and truly yes. we don't know. And I think that's very much the importance. <laughs> Thank you for framing it that way. But yeah, I mean, you know, if the virus was less, the word we use sometimes is virulent, meaning it causes less severe illness. That's a welcome. That would be welcome uh, if it was more transmissible and caused less symptoms. And if the vaccines still conferred protection, we'd still we'd be in a great we'd be in a good position. Um, but, yeah, I, I think the other point, too, is just because those mutations are there, it doesn't mean the virus is going to behave exactly in the way that the mutations um, people might think it will. Like the, the virus actually changes shape with all these mutations and the behavior and the function of the virus is, can be slightly different. So you got to look at, we look at three things. Number one, what is the genetic fingerprint? Okay, we got that. And that's why we this is a variant of concern because of the genetic fingerprint. Number two, what are the clinical manifestations? We don't know. And then number three, the epidemiology. To what extent is this more transmissible? Uh, and again, we just don't know. I mean, we do know hey, this is still SARS-CoV-2. Looks a little different than it did, uh, you know, a year or a year and a half ago, but it's, we're still dealing with the same virus, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, that's why, 
it's likely that the vaccines are still going to provide some degree of protection. You know, even if there is some erosion or chipping away at the immunity we have from vaccination or natural re- recovery from infection, you'll probably still have some protection. Like it's exactly as like you point out, still the same virus, um, but a component of the virus, like the spike protein, has changed a little bit. Okay, we can deal with that. And the other thing, too, is like, I, I don't know if this will actually come to anything. Again, it's so early, but um, some of the vaccine companies are already looking into uh, adapting the vaccine to accommodate for this particular variant. Hey, maybe we'll need it. Maybe we don't. Uh, you can't, we just can't speak confidently at this early on. I think what we can speak confidently on is we need to do better to get vaccines to other parts of the world with less access. We need to do better, at, at least in Canada, to ensure that we have uh, vaccine access and really reach out to the unvaccinated eligible population. And like, I know no one, I think myself included, nobody wants to wear masks and, and, and nobody likes these public health measures. Like no, nobody does. But hey, I think for the fall and winter, like I think we, we need to carry on with this for the fall and winter. We'll leave it there. Obviously, we're going to learn more in the coming days and weeks, uh, but I appreciate your perspective uh, and insight on all of this. Dr. Bogosh, thanks so much for joining us. Have a great day. I, I don't think we're going to luck out and have this not be a problem at all. And yeah, look, there have been some other variants that have uh, uh, arisen along the way. One recently was this uh, Mu variant, the MU variant, that looked pretty problematic, uh, but didn't turn out to be much of a problem at all, simply because it couldn't compete with Delta. Now, part of the concern here, looking at uh, the trends in South Africa, where Delta cases were on the decline and suddenly cases have shot up, is at least an indication that this one could outcompete Delta. Based on what we know about the impact of some of these mutations, yes, this could indeed pose a problem in terms of a transmissible variant, in terms of one that can punch through some of those uh, immunity defenses, be it vaccination or previous infection. Now, certainly the data is encouraging when it comes to the impact of booster shots and three doses compared to two. But there's also that consideration that what if we had doses, booster doses that were more specifically tailored, targeted, at the spike protein of this variant, at some of these worrisome mutations. But with the mRNA vaccines, it's relatively straightforward to do. It does take some time. Uh, today, Moderna's chief medical officer, Dr. Paul Burton, said that a vaccine targeting this variant could be ready in large quantities by early 2022. That's if it is needed. Here's what he had to say. We've mobilized hundreds of people here in the U.S. and around the world. We started that uh, really early on Thursday, on Thanksgiving Day. Um, we should know about the ability of the current vaccine to provide protection in the next couple of weeks. But the remarkable thing about the mRNA vaccines, the Moderna platform, is that we can move very fast. If we have to make a brand new vaccine, I think that's going to be early 2021, uh, 2022, before that's really going to be available uh, in, in large quantities. You know, I think we have we have uh, cause to be hopeful. Uh, we've learned a lot about this virus in general. Um, you know, we've learned so much about how to deal with COVID as well uh, through simple measures and obviously through vaccines. But until we see how this virus now behaves in populations of older people, people with other comorbidities, uh, we really will not get a handle on exactly how severe uh, the disease could be, I think. Okay. And so that's the tricky thing for these companies, that you need to wait and see 
what the data tells us. You need to wait and see whether a new targeted booster dose would be necessary. So that's the dilemma they face. Do you start working on that now? Do you start producing it now? And what if it's not necessary? What's the one variant where you need that kind of a response? Is this it? We'll know in due course. Let's recap the week that was in the controversy that David Suzuki prompted a week ago when he said the following. We're in deep, deep doo-doo. And they've been telling us, the leading experts, for over 40 years. This is what we're come to. The next stage after this is there are going to be pipelines blown up if our leaders don't pay attention to what's going on. Now, David Suzuki was addressing a rally a week ago in Victoria for the group Extinction Rebellion. Now, interestingly, the group doubled down on David Suzuki's comments, and certainly there were those prepared to defend David Suzuki. There was a whole lot of criticism of David Suzuki from federal conservative leader Aaron O'Toole, Alberta Premier Jason Kenney. Uh, even when pressed in the House of Commons, Justin Trudeau, although not directly addressing David Suzuki, referred to such comments as unhelpful and potentially dangerous. Now, David Suzuki, after initially refusing to apologize, did offer a formal apology for the comments. He said in part, quote, my words were spoken out of extreme frustration and I apologize. We must find a way to stop the environmental damage we are doing to the planet and we must do so in a nonviolent manner. Now, I suppose too many people, the comments might have seemed out of context that David Suzuki still has this reputation as a sober and serious scientist. But I think increasingly it's fair to say that David Suzuki uh, is more of an activist and perhaps even you could say a radical. And that saying controversial or provocative things is not unusual for David Suzuki. As our next guest helpfully lays out in a piece he wrote for the National Post, nationalpost.com, Tristan Hopper. Columnist uh, for the National Post, Post Media, joins us on the line here this afternoon. Tristan, thank you for joining us. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's interesting to look back at previous controversies that David Suzuki has thrust himself into because this, you know, even though he did apologize for what he said this week, it really wasn't a, a one-off, was it? No, this happens all the time. Um, so, as, as someone who you know works with Post Media and has often written about David Suzuki. Uh, yeah, um, he is sort of held up. Uh, it's, it's frustrating to see how often he's held up as like this pinnacle of science. Like, you know, David Suzuki would never say it unless it was backed up by the evidence. You know, this is Mr. Science. He was, you know, he held a science show for years. Uh, all he's doing is just telling us uh, evidence-based stuff, and that's just not true. Um, so there are, have been multiple instances in which he said something wildly unscientific, like not even close to what the evidence is saying. And then in those instances, you have actual scientists saying, oh, hi, David Suzuki, big fan. That's not true at all. Can you please stop saying that? And he'll just keep saying it. So it's, it's very frustrating uh, to see him constantly held up as this environmental stage because there are uh, there are environmentalists who aren't insane. Um, you know, we could listen to them and actually get some policies yeah. that make sense. Uh, but people just keep listening to David Suzuki. Yeah, and, and look, I mean, you know, David Suzuki's been around uh, a long time. Uh, obviously, people know him from the nature of things. And, and I think at one time, maybe the, the reputation uh, of being uh, a serious scientist or an environmental sage, maybe that did apply. And it's interesting, isn't it, that that's kind of the lasting impression a lot of Canadians still have of him. Why do you suspect that is? 
I mean, you watch the show, and uh, it's been a while since I've seen an episode of The Nature of Things, but yeah, that was a, an environmental show. Like, you know, if you were, ooh, look at nature, and, you know, just curiosity, and we're speaking to scientists. It was a legitimate scientific show. Um, so to go from, so to become that host, and then suddenly to be basically an activist showing around $50,000 a pop for a speech, and then as you drift into your 70s and your 80s, just saying what kind of comes off the top of your head, regardless if it's backed by any evidence. So, you know, you can say that there's some dissonance there. I mean, the cynic could say that David Suzuki is sort of um, capitalizing on a reputation uh, that didn't really match um, often what he is saying. We mentioned your piece, and it's up at nationalpost.com, and you go through some of these past examples of this, and, and some of them really jump out. And I recall this because I, I think this was one of maybe the, the first times that there was a, a real concerted scientific pushback. And, and maybe there were those in the scientific community, their environmental movement, that they, they just don't want to call out David Suzuki. Maybe they're not looking for that fight, or, or maybe they don't want to damage his reputation. But the comments about Fukushima, I, that was where I saw a difference, where there was a willingness to push back and say, look, what he's saying is is just completely insane. Tell us a bit more about what it was he said in the aftermath of Fukushima. So this was a, this is an appearance at the University of Alberta. Uh, I forget the nature of the appearance, but he was talking about, so this is the aftermath of the Fukushima, uh, Fukushima Daiichi uh, nuclear disaster. So this is um, as a result of the 2011 uh, tsunami in Japan, uh, you basically have, you lose electric power at uh, Fukushima, which means they can't cool the reactors and it caused, you know, partial meltdowns to several cores. So the absolute worst case scenario at Fukushima, and Fukushima actually wasn't, ultimately, it's the worst nuclear disaster since Chernobyl, but um, if you're trying to talk up nuclear power, you would say, well, this is the worst thing since Chernobyl, and you really only had like a handful of deaths, most of them directly related to explosions. So you didn't have uh, you know, hundreds of deaths due to radiation. There's only been one confirmed cancer death uh, from Fukushima, you know, compared to, you know, millions of cold-related deaths. So uh, anyway, um, so that happened. So, but the absolute worst case scenario, which didn't happen in Fukushima, is they thought if there was a, a major release of radioactive material, there could have been a scenario in which you were evacuating an area around Fukushima that would have incorporated Tokyo, which is the world's largest city. You could have seen a worst case scenario in which you had 10 million people evacuated. So Anyway, uh, David Suzuki was at this event, and he said, actually, the worst-case scenario would have involved the um, bye-bye Japan. So basically, you know, Japan is wiped off the face of the earth, and you would have had to evacuate the West Coast of North America. So 10 million, which didn't happen, uh, is bad. And then to increase that to basically the entire Western Hemisphere has to evacuate made absolutely no sense. So after that came out, you had even sort of progressive uh, – and that's the thing is David Suzuki says this. And for about 24 hours, people are like, oh, you know, a dire warning issued by David. People listen <laughs> right. to him. So you can't just say dumb stuff yeah. because people are going to panic and, uh, you know, maybe get a vision of nuclear power that isn't matched by any reality. So anyway, um, after this came out, you had uh, nuclear scientists, including very fierce critics of nuclear energy who do not like nuclear power plants, saying, uh, no, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, even if you have a, a full meltdown of Fukushima, it doesn't destroy the Pacific Ocean somehow. There was another controversy shortly after that, and th this one was weird because it, it came from David Suzuki. It's almost the kind of thing you might expect to hear from, you know, some kind of far-right populist leader or even, you know, some kind of anti-immigrant uh, group or something. The idea that Canada is full. And that's what David Suzuki said. Uh, yeah, so this came up. Uh, this He was speaking to... I think it was a French magazine, and so, like, Express, and then they were asking him, 
about there's in the Australian environmental movement, there's this sort of growing anti-immigrant sentiment. The idea being, and you will get this in fringe parts of the environmental movement, you always have, um, is this, this idea that um, someone who lives in Australia is going to be consuming more resources than someone who lives in, say, India. So you shouldn't have immigration because the more Indians turn into Australians, the higher the world's emissions are going to be. Um, so basically, he was asked about this. What do you think about Australia and this environmental movement having sort of an anti-immigrant bent? And he just immediately said, oh, no, I agree. That's a great idea. And literally, quote, Canada is full, unquote, and said, uh, you know, Canada can take in refugees. Uh, but effectively saying that for the exact same reasons, Canada should close its borders um, because the more we, we just saw immigration as this cynical plan to sort of grow the economy and uh, increase our emissions, which our emissions do go up because we have uh, very high immigration. But, uh, you know, essentially telling Canada, one of the highest immigration countries in the world, um, I think it's fair to say, uh, we do it best. Uh, We usually don't have a tremendous amount of anti-immigrant sentiment, especially compared to Europe and even the United States. Um, So, yeah, it was pretty out there. Um, I think it uh, was, it's weird how it didn't get more attention because I think it's fair to say any number of public figures, particularly if they were from the right, that's a career ender. Um, You know, if you had... Uh, like if Aaron O'Toole uh, came out and said, yeah, Canada's full. I hate immigration. That's, that's it. Um, he has to resign the next day. So it, it is strange that Davis Suzuki said it. And we're like, no, nah, that didn't happen. Well, and there are other examples of this. So the, the one other aspect I wanted to touch on, and it, it's come up a lot, is what seems to a lot of people like hypocrisy, the way, you know, David Suzuki talks about uh, environmentalism, kind of a, a more alarmist sort of perspective and, and the way he lives his life. Uh, he owns a number of homes. It's a kind of lifestyle that does seem at odds with his message. So how much is there to that? Yeah, so I'm usually hesitant on this argument uh, when people are like, oh, Elizabeth May is a hypocrite. She owns a Prius or, you know, she has to ride a diesel powered ferry. I'm like, OK, you, you live in 2021. You have to to exist as a normal human. Uh, you are going to have to use fossil fuels in some sense. So I think you can be an environmentalist and still, you know, fly a plane every once in a while. But I think it's fair to say uh, because David Suzuki often does preach minimalism. Uh, he, he says like at that speech where he said the pipeline should be blown up. This is something he brings up often, uh, the outrage that we can get fresh fruits and vegetables in Canada in January, which are imported from California and other places. Uh, he's saying, like, basically, we shouldn't have that. It should be 100 years ago, and it's all canned goods, and it's all local food. So he does sort of, when he speaks to people, he says, you should have lives uh, with less. You should do without fresh vegetables. You should do without, you know, a car. Uh, you should do without vacation. Uh, but, uh, yeah, when you look at his real estate portfolio, he owns at least four properties, uh, two, two properties in uh, Vancouver's West End, and then two, two more island properties, so sort of two cottages uh, in islands uh, in the Strait of uh, Georgia, so uh, islands between Vancouver and Vancouver Island. And then, uh, this is the most egregious, I think, uh, a property in Australia, like a vacation property in Australia. So to get from Vancouver to Australia, it's a 21-hour flight one way. So again, if you have a guy who is who his whole thing is telling people that we have a climate crisis and, you know, every uh, ton of CO2 that goes into the environment uh, is a increased risk to humanity, which, you know, is true to a certain extent. Um, And then they have to do with less, but, you know, a pretty easy, pretty easy to just say, how about I not get an Australian vacation home? I'll just stick with the existing two uh, in the Strait of Juan de Fuca. So when he's not uh, willing to make even very basic changes to his lifestyle in the name of the climate, I think it's fair to call that hypocrisy. 
I think so. Well, much more on all of this is mentioned. Your piece is up at nationalpost.com. Tristan Hopper, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Thank you. We're about nine or 10 weeks away from the Winter Olympics in Beijing. Now, obviously, it's possible that whatever happens with this new variant could throw a wrench into things, but it's it's premature at this point to go down that path. As it stands now, February 4th are the opening ceremonies. And as it stands now, Canada plans on sending athletes to those Olympic Games, even though there have been calls for a boycott. There was certainly concern about the human rights situation in China, more recently concern uh, over the fate of uh, Chinese tennis star Peng Shui and the fallout from the allegation she leveled, a sexual assault allegation against a top Chinese official. With that whole situation presenting itself, the idea of a diplomatic boycott has been floated. And it sounds as though it's something the White House is considering. We'll send the athletes, but we'll also send a message by keeping diplomats away from the Olympics. And maybe that strikes a balance between participation and sending a message. But our next guest says that could backfire in certain ways, and that raises other challenges. Uh, Eric Morse is a retired Canadian diplomat, an active member of the Royal Canadian Military Institute, was actually involved in the 1980 Moscow boycott campaign with the Canadian Department of External Affairs. And he joins us on the line here this afternoon to talk about an op-ed he wrote in the Globe and Mail this past week. Eric, good afternoon. Welcome to the program. Good afternoon, Rob. Thanks for having me. Uh, you know, and clearly you're you're obviously well aware of the concerns around this this Olympics and, and the case has been made for a, a boycott. It does appear as though Canada and the other countries will participate. Let me get your thoughts, though, on the idea of a diplomatic boycott, what that would look like and where you see some risks in that strategy. OK, just before we get into that, let me uh, just issue the customary disclaimer that although I'm an active member of the Royal Canadian Institute, anything I say here does not reflect its views. Yeah. Now, um, I don't know what a diplomatic boycott actually means. I gather that it means we send the athletes, but no government representatives. Um, what the amb- ambassadors and whatnot who are in Beijing do, I'm not sure, but I suppose they'll be told to lie, lie low and... Uh, and uh, pretend the Olympics aren't happening. But um, I think that's a very misguided approach to this, and I'm a little disturbed to see reports yesterday that the Canadian government is starting to think of it. On, On the face of it, it looks like a good idea until you reckon with China's recent track record, which has been vicious retaliation over any perceived slight. And this isn't going to be a perceived slight. It'll be a deliberate one. Well, yes, and clearly that would be the intent, to to send some kind of a message to the Chinese. But as you allude to, the, the Chinese don't take too kindly to those kinds of messages being sent. So what could be the potential followed from that? If I knew that, I'd be rich. But, sure, uh, yeah. But, uh, I mean, these things are hypothetical. Uh, because anything's hypothetical until it happens, and once it's happened, it's usually too late. That's why we have insurance. Uh, But you can't factor the political risk on this. All you can do is consider that for no particular reason except the detention of um, the lady from Huawei, uh, 
two Canadians were detained, one of them a diplomat, for 1,020 days, which is 120 days longer than the Nazis besieged Leningrad. And we didn't get them out without some serious help from our friends. So uh, I don't know that I want to bet on what the Chinese would do in a situation like that. They don't have to detain the whole team and ship them off to a gulag, of course. They just have to find somebody to make an example of. They could be a, a Canadian athlete. It could be a Canadian athlete. I haven't looked down, yeah. the, down the roster, so I don't right. know if we have, have any Chinese Canadians on that team, but uh, it'd be a peachy target if we did. Well, we look back at the decision to boycott the 1980 Olympics in, in Moscow, and there was a long lead up to that. I think it was December of 79 when, when uh, the Soviets invaded Afghanistan. So there was a long lead up to, to those Summer Olympics. Here we are now, the situation with tennis star Peng Shui, I think, has, has thrust a lot of these issues to the forefront. But you know, we're just, I, I think, about nine weeks away from, from the opening ceremony. So how different is the situation now compared to, to 1980? Uh Okay, uh, in 1980, it took months to assemble uh, a boycott response. We were briefing the prime minister all the way from February through April, weekly, as to who was in and who was out. And it wasn't until the end of April that uh, the government finally said to the Canadian Olympic Committee, uh, look, we can't stop you from going. Uh, but you'll be waiting a long time for any more government funding if you do. And they took that on board and decided not to go. They were also under heavy pressure from their own fundraisers and from their own chef de mission in Moscow, who was a World War II brigadier. So, the situation, yeah. No, go ahead. All right. If anything happens no. this time, it's going to be very compressed. That's one. And that's probably why people are talking about a diplomatic boycott, because governments can do that. It's harder to bring pressure on an Olympic committee. The U.S. has a bit of a, an advantage there because they actually created the Olympic committee by act of Congress. And Jimmy Carter threatened to pull their passports if they went. Now, we can't do that. They can I mean, to what extent are we inevitably following the American lead? We, we weren't going to boycott in 1980 on our own, and I, I doubt we're going to do anything uh, on our own this time around. I doubt we would do anything on, on our own this time because our, our own policy to, with, towards China is considerably more fraught. And if yesterday's reports that Justin is considering it, that the prime minister is considering it, are any indication, then uh, some serious thought is going around Ottawa. But no, I don't think we'd do it without the Americans. Is there a case for some kind of response, though? I mean, would there be a case for a boycott, not just the situation with Peng Shui, the situation uh, with the Uyghur minority, uh, ethnic minority in China, the situation in Hong Kong? I mean, there's a long list of concerns around China hosting these games. How, how serious are those concerns in your view? Well, uh, you're talking to somebody who's been saying we shouldn't be going near Beijing for months, not that anybody was interested until this came up. Uh, yeah. But in 1936, a lot of people were saying we shouldn't go to Berlin. We went. We did. And, and it turned out to be quite a propaganda coup for, for the Nazis. I, I think yes. 2008 was a propaganda coup for, for the Chinese government. This will likely be uh, another, won't it? 
Yes, and it saddens my heart that we had bid for Toronto had bid for 2008 and lost. But uh, that's kind of yeah. But, but yeah, um, when an, when hosting an Olympic Games becomes a propaganda prize for uh, an authoritarian system, you got to wonder: uh, is this all worth it? And I and a lot of my friends and colleagues have spent a lot of our lives uh, asserting that the Olympics are worth it. But in a case like this, you start to question. Well, you do. Uh, to, to what extent, then, do, do we point a finger of blame at the IOC, do you think? The IOC will always defend its, uh, its property. Uh, I mean, that's what large, complex organizations do. Um, you, you know, if you wish to sanction the IOC, you can do it through sponsors. Otherwise, uh, just like in 1980, a boycott of any shape or form is a symbolic statement. And I don't mind symbolic statements because they're 80% of diplomacy, but you have to wonder about consequences. And Did you do? Wondered well, yeah. about them, you have to provide for them. She wanted to spend some time with her family and friends, and they agreed that, well, you know, the Thomas uh, Box said, look, I'll, I'll be in Beijing in a month or two. Uh, let's get together and, and have lunch or something and continue our, uh, our, our conversation. And, and so if you're really concerned about Peng, you've got some good news. Oh, do we? Well, that was uh, Dick Pound, Canadian, of course, high-ranking IOC official on CNN yesterday. In kind of an awkward and, and embarrassing exchange, if I'm being honest. The IOC would have us believe that, that there is no concern here whatsoever with regard to Chinese tennis star Peng Shui. Now, just the, the short version of the story is that Peng Shui had, had posted on, on Chinese social media a very lengthy and emotional post describing a sexual assault she endured and uh, accusing a high-ranking Chinese official, somebody who was instrumental in China securing the, the uh, Winter Olympics next year, as the one responsible. And after that, Peng Shui seemed to drop off the face of the earth. She was nowhere to be seen. No one had seen or heard from her. Uh, Chinese uh, censors were essentially blocking any mention of her name or discussion around the case on Chinese social media and news sites. It was an oddly worded statement that went out purportedly from Peng Shui via Chinese state media. And then there was the video call with IOC President Thomas Bach, which seemed very orchestrated. We've only seen snippets of it. The entire video call has not been released. Maybe that shouldn't surprise us. What it really, I, I think, says to us is that the IOC doesn't want any concern or controversy ahead of the games, and they are more than willing to swallow and parrot the official Chinese line on this situation. There is still very good reason, I think, to be concerned about Peng Shui, and very good reason to be concerned about all of the other athletes that we're going to be sending to China in just a few weeks' time, the beginning of February. Uh, joining us to talk more about the situation is Jules Boykoff. He's a professor and department chair at uh, Pacific University in Oregon, the Department of Politics and Government, author of uh, several books about the IOC and the Olympics, including No Olympians and Power Games, A Political History of the Olympics. Professor Boykoff, thank you so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. My pleasure to be back. Thanks. I'm sure you've seen the, the interview on CNN with uh, Dick Pound. Uh, your, your impressions of that, first of all. 
Yes, well, I think Mr. Pound was doing almost the exact same thing that Tomas Bach, the person you mentioned before, has been doing, the president of the International Olympic Committee. Uh, they're showing a ghastly disregard for the serious allegations of sexual abuse that Peng Shui has raised. Instead, they appear to have shoved these serious claims off to the side while simultaneously making their goal pretty clear, which is to create a flimsy cover story for the Chinese authorities so that the games, the Olympic Games of Beijing, can go on. Well, and you raise an important point because, yes, there's the, the very important question of Peng Shui's well-being and to what extent she's she's being intimidated by Chinese officials here. But there's the, also the question of the allegation. And so it's one thing for Dick Pound or Thomas Bach to say, oh, we talked to Peng Shui and she seems fine. Okay, what about the substance of the allegation? What about the fact that this is somebody who was uh, very instrumental in China securing the game, someone who worked very closely with Thomas Bach? There's a pretty clear conflict of interest there, isn't there? Absolutely. And, you know, Bach, Thomas Bach, the president of the International Olympic Committee, in his uh, talking about his 30-minute conversation that he had with a tennis player, failed to mention the fact that he has worked with Zhang Gaoli, this high-level Chinese official that Peng Shui has accused of sexual assault. And as you noted in your excellent introduction to this segment, uh, Zhang led a steering group that oversaw Beijing's Olympic bid. And so in this role, he was in contact with higher-ups at the International Olympic Committee including President Bach, something Bach never mentioned. In fact, online now you can see photographs of a grinning Bach shaking hands with this man uh, that are available for all to see. So, you know, if nothing else, you would think this episode would be the death knell for the absurd notion that the Olympics transcend politics. And I was speaking the other day uh, with Yacho Wang, who's a senior researcher on China at Human Rights Watch, and she told me that when it comes to the Chinese government's human rights record, the IOC has long demonstrated a failure to do the right thing. But she thinks that what we're seeing now is actually a really important and different pivot. She told me that this new episode is demonstrates the active participation on the part of the IOC in something that is very wrong. And she pointed to the fact that the Chinese government has a long record of forcing people to appear on videos or television programs to make statements that the government wants them to make. And Certainly the IOC is well aware of that, but they just kind of choose to look the other way. And she told me she felt like it was shameful, and I actually agree with her on that. Well, the problem for the IOC is that if they concede that, and, and I think it's a point that does need to be conceded, but the IOC almost can't because then it raises further questions about why we're sending athletes to, to Beijing in a few weeks' time, why these Olympics are happening in China. The IOC mm -hmm. almost needs to be blind to this. They almost need to accept what China's saying because they backed themselves into a corner, haven't they? On one hand, I can see what you're saying. On the other hand, will the International Olympic Committee ever have more leverage over China than it has right now? Yeah. After all, if you look at the host city contract that the Beijing bidders signed with Thomas Bach and the IOC, it gives enormous power to the International Olympic Committee. I mean, people in Tokyo just a couple months back learned this the hard way because there was a lot of pressure on their elected officials to cancel the Olympics. It brought a lot of attention to this host city contract. It says very clearly that the International Olympic Committee held all the cards, all the power 
when it came to canceling the games, essentially making the prime minister of Japan helpless in the face of IOC power. Mm-hmm. So, you know, now would be the time, if ever, that the International Olympic Committee might just speak up against what's happening in Beijing. But, you know, I think you alluded to this in your previous comments, which is money is really driving a lot of this. And if we rewind the tape, Rob, back to 2015, when the International Olympic Committee first handed these Olympics to Beijing, that was because all manner of other cities coming from democratic countries, whether it's Stockholm, Sweden, Oslo, Norway, or even Lviv, Ukraine, dropped out of the bidding because of all these negative elements that were being raised about the International Olympic Committee and the Olympic machine. That only left Beijing and Almaty, Kazakhstan, neither of them bastions of democracy. And the International Olympic Committee went with what they knew, Beijing, and they've been a risk ever since these Olympics. And so now we're starting to see the fruit coming out. This Peng Shui thing just punctuates everything uh, that really makes us see things with fresh eyes. Is there anything that the IOC has to fear from China? Do you, do you think that's a part of it here that you know maybe China would just say, well, the hell with you guys or, or something along those lines? Is there anything you think the IOC is afraid of if they speak out on this? Well, that'd be a great question if you could get Richard Pound on your show to actually ask him. I mean, he'd be the one to really answer that. But there's no question that the China that hosted the 2008 Summer Olympics is not the same China that we're looking at today. We're looking at a much more powerful country today that if it decides to say, you know what, screw you, Olympics, they could basically do that. And, you know, it's not like there's a bunch of the locals that be able to stand up and say, hey, what happened to all of the, the money that we contributed to this? Yeah. They would just move on and go to the next thing. So, you know, I think that if there were ever a moment in the recent political history of the Olympics where the host could turn its back on the Olympics, we're looking at it right now. But that's extremely doubtful that that would happen. I mean, China has a lot to gain from hosting these Olympics. There's an important concept that's getting more and more traction out there, and that's the idea of sports washing using these big mega events, sports mega events, to burnish your reputation, to launder your political dirty laundry on the world stage. And so, you know, this is a great chance for China to do these uh, grip and grins with diplomats that come over from around the world and to look important, to look official, and to host, despite what we're talking about today, one of the most popular events in terms of sports across the world. Well, there has been talk about uh, a possible diplomatic boycott, which would involve still sending the athletes, but maybe keeping diplomats home. Do you, do you think there's any serious traction to that? And and does it matter? Is that a meaningful gesture, do you think? Yeah. Well, to the first part of your question, yes, I do think there is serious traction to that. And the presidential administration of Joe Biden here in the United States has intimated that that's a real deal possibility, as have other countries. In terms of what it will actually achieve is is a totally separate question, and I don't think it will honestly achieve much. That doesn't mean I don't believe people should engage in a diplomatic boycott. I think you have to stand by your principles and and align your sentiments and your actions. But in terms of its overall effects, uh, I don't see it making a big dent in terms of what the, the country of China is able to achieve, nor the Olympic movement as it's currently constituted. You know, and you mentioned it. I mean, we went through a lot of this in 2008, whether China was an appropriate host for the games, and certainly China's seeing a lot of value in hosting the games. And, you know, any notion that this was going to moderate China or bring them more into the international community, I think we've seen over the last 13 years that that just didn't happen. Did we fail to learn it? Did the IOC fail to learn any lessons from 2008? Yeah, I mean, if you listen to Sophie Richardson of Human Rights Watch, she argued in the wake of the 2008 Summer Games 
that those Olympics were actually a catalyst for further abuses in the country. In other words, hosting the Olympics made the repression more intense in the wake of the games when all the media from around the world went home with their cameras and microphones. And yet the IOC definitely had all that information at its disposal. Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, numerous international human rights groups have been speaking out on these very issues and supplying these well-researched reports to the International Olympic Committee. And quite frankly, the International Olympic Committee is more concerned about keeping its money spigot open than it is about human rights, even though human rights are mentioned one time in the Olympic Charter, even though the preservation of dignity is celebrated in the Olympic Charter, that all kind of becomes secondary to the International Olympic Committee's main goal, which is to keep the Olympics going keep the high life of those International Olympic Committee members going. I mean, these guys really do live the high life. And, you know, just to keep the machine rolling forward. And, and I think we're getting a really straightforward look at the ethical bankruptcy that really runs this organization right now. And I think a lot of people are, are with good minds thinking, should, is now the time to get rid of the International Olympic Committee? I mean, does the world really need this organization? Is this a moment where we could hand the Olympics over to socially conscious athlete groups or hit the pause button on the Olympics until they can get it right? And, you know, these were not questions that the media were asking only like five, six years ago, but now they're becoming pretty common in the media sphere. Yeah. Well, we spoke before about, you know, how reckless the IOC was being in, in pushing the Olympics forward in Tokyo. You know, we're talking about here how we are responsible. They're being here in a different context. I wonder how lasting that damages. I mean, the IOC has a roadmap now. It's, it's an unusual circumstance where we know where the 2024 Olympics, the 28 Olympics, the 32 mm -hmm. Olympics are going to be. But how much could this derail some of their longer term plans and, and I think further damage, you know, the brand, the image? Yeah, that's a great question. I do believe that there has been significant reputational damage done to the International Olympic Committee. But you're absolutely right in pointing ahead. What have they done in the face of principled social criticism of the variety that you and I have been discussing the last few minutes? They haven't changed their ways at all. Instead, they started booking up future Olympics way out into the future. It wasn't that long ago, Rob, that they used to give the Olympics one year and then seven years later they would host that Games. Well, they changed that recipe back in 2017 when they allotted both the 2024 Summer Olympics to Paris and the 2028 Summer Olympics to Los Angeles. That was after numerous other cities dropped out of bidding and they only had two bids standing and they did this kind of Hail Mary move. And in doing so, they opened up kind of a new pattern. They just announced that they're going to give the 2032 Summer Olympics to Brisbane in Australia. And this is a place that has definitely not had a public referendum. It's barely even had a public discussion about this. And so I think that even though they're giving out these Olympics way far in advance, that doesn't mean that there aren't going to be serious critical discussions in these cities in the years to come. Once everyday people in the city realize what they're into, once the Olympics start to roll forward and all the money that needs to be spent, their money, taxpayers' money, to make these things happen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.